go back into South Bend's history. 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, and what do you see? You see groups of people working to bring change to this city. They had different ideas of what that change should be. They didn't always agree. Yet, in every decade, there were groups of people for whom positive change was their life's work. This podcast, South Bend's Own Words, features the voices of people who helped make this city change. We'll share clips from the oral histories done by the Indiana University South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center that tell a more complete history of the city. It's the story of many cultures, not just one. It's the story of South Bend. In 1867, the people inhabiting what we now call South Bend established a community school corporation. Today, few local organizations are as important or as fought over as our public schools. South Bend's racial and ethnic makeup changed through the 20th century from about 99% white to about 60% white. In response to that change, the white majority segregated public spaces like the city swimming pool, neighborhoods segregated African Americans, and of course, schools segregated African Americans. South Bend schools have had two major desegregation efforts, the first in 1980 and the second in 2000, known as Plan Z. To this day, our schools operate under terms of a federal consent decree requiring oversight from the Department of Justice to ensure the racial makeup of our schools remains within set limits. The decree was the result of decades of work challenging racism in our school system. Those efforts were inspired by the lived experiences of many of South Bend's students of color. Today, we present a series of stories from people who were children in South Bend schools, as well as stories from people who, as adults, fought for change. First, Helen Pope. I started school at Oliver School in 1921. Mm-hmm. I started kindergarten there. And uh, I don't think that there were over five or six black children there at that time. Mm-hmm. Probably I was the only one in my, in my classroom that was black. How many high schools were there? Riley, time? Central. Adams came about in the, I think Adams came about the, in the 40s, mm-hmm. uh, Adams High School. Riley and Central and Washington were the three, the three high schools. The only time that really these issues came to the bear was from teachers. Oh, really? And how, how did that manifest? Uh, uh, the teachers made it known to, um, to us, at least to me, when I was, and I had several tell me the same thing, there was one counselor down there that always uh, felt that black children would not be able to go to college. That they, they, they just couldn't make it. Mm-hmm. You should plan another career. As a matter of fact, uh, this one teacher said, well, you have a stepfather. How do you expect him to go to, go to college? He, he's not going to send you. He's going to send his children. Now, were, how many other students were in, you know, how many of the other black students went the college prep way versus the vocation? They, they were, were not directed off. that way. They were not encouraged that way. Mm-hmm. You see, the, the assumption was that the whites could learn, but the blacks could not. They were so more difficult mm-hmm. for them to learn. This is what was the uh, assumption. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Coleridge Dickinson. One, one impression I have of the South Bend schools is that they were pretty segregated. That doesn't mean that, that, um, that there were not uh, African Americans in various schools, but that, that there were a few elementary schools that had most all of the African Americans. How do you account for that? Same meaning it is today. A lot of times it has to do with the real estate companies. At there's certain places they won't let me walk by. And, and, and if they do, the ter territories are so redlined. Uh, and then they had a way of, of taxing property to the point that the most of the poor property was where most of the minorities lived. And that's the reason they had places like Adams and Riley. They always had better schools, better teachers, more equipment. And my, when I was coming up, we didn't have as many schools. So Central got a pretty good share of what was available. Uh, we had the biggest enrollment, so we had the best football team, the best basketball team, uh, uh, the uh, theatrical production for each to be bigger and better. Oh, yeah. Because we had much more to do. Yeah, the problem was more in the in the elementary schools. It seemed to me. Uh, well, because they had the feeder system. Yeah, and and they didn't have the busing, and you walked to school. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't ever block by block in school. Barbara Brandy. Um, where did you go to elementary school? I went to Linden. Linden. That's where Martin Luther King Center is now. And I went to the ninth grade there. The school was predominantly black back in 48, 49. It was getting that way because they were starting to have what you call white flight and most of the neighborhoods. But the only, the only whites in the neighborhood was the old Polish families or Hungarian families that refused to move because they were embedded in the community. Mm -hmm. Owned their homes and all that. And, and then a lot of them owned the grocery stores and the bakeries, so that right. was the thing. Mm -hmm. right. Any, any uh, white teachers? Oh, any, yes. any black teachers, I mean? Not when I was at Linden, no. no. They, the principal and everyone was white. The teachers were quite old. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them even wondered how yeah. long they were going to be there. <laughs> Because a number of them had taught my mother when she went to Linda. Is that right? Uh huh. How are the relations between the black and white students? Very good. Good. Very good. In fact, the white girl in the class that we had was my best friend. We would go to each other's home. But the strange thing was that once we got to Central, and I would see her in the hall and speak because we weren't in the same home room. And she began to make friends of other whites. She quit speaking. And I thought that was a little odd because I befriended her when none of the other black mm -hmm. students would. And now that she had friends of whites, she did not know me. Mm -hmm. It kind of hurt for a while, but then I said, well, consider the source and you leave it alone. But she's the one that lost. And she lost. What were you being taught in school about segregation? We weren't taught segregation. <laughs> were you aware of it? In a subtle way, 
we were aware of it. It wasn't taught at home because we were in an integrated neighborhood. So I didn't know what really what segregation was until I went to high school. And everybody started splitting right. into their little groups. Was there any kind of open conflict between students? No, mm -hmm. no. We had our place in the auditorium when there's functions, and we had our place in the cafeteria when we went before classes or at lunchtime or after school. But there was just a place that the students would go. Not designated. Not designated, but passed on mm -hmm. from student to student that would come in as underclassmen. The word get out, I mean, you just didn't? You just didn't. I guess you would call it an understanding mm -hmm. that you just don't. Did you have any white friends? Oh, yes. School? A lot of them. Um, and it's so funny. Not funny, haha, -ha, but funny. The white friends that I had were rich kids. The ones that treated me bad were the ones that were either on the same level of income that I was in or lower. But I had more rich white kids as friends and invited to their homes than I did middle class and poor white kids, which seemed a little strange because they would understand. John Charles Bryant. Were the schools uh, integrated in South Bend? They were not integrated until 51. This is what I'm saying. In 1951 is when you had your first blacks that were hired as school teachers. And Herbert Lewis, Peggy Flowers Eskridge, and Ruby Jarrett Joyce were the first three blacks hired with the school system. Ruby Jarrett Joyce was hired in administrative, and Herbert Lewis and Peggy Flowers Eskridge were hired as teachers, and they went to Linden. So in growing up, I never had a black school teacher. What about the pupils, the students? Uh, uh, yeah, the students were, were, you mean mixed in different, yes, yes. yes. But, you had but again, teachers. it mattered where, where you lived. If you lived on 40th Avenue, you had very few blacks that were going to Marquette. Or you had very few blacks that were going to Meso because there were certain districts that just did not have black people. There were not that many black people that um, lived in this area. Leroy and Margaret Cobb. But now, when you start talking about the 50s and 60s, Michael and them was what? With along, right, they were one of the first blacks in the Marquette School. Marquette School, that's For a right. Whole year, that's was right. Only, only blacks in Marquette School. And they, they didn't want them down there. No. And the fact uh, we had to have a group of black parents go to a measles school there, remember that? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. And talk to the principal and the teachers. Oh, yes, they had prejudiced, prejudiced teachers there. I Whoa. mean, they were prejudiced. Whoa. But when we, well, y'all went down there. I'm glad I didn't go because I followed, lost well, we my cool. Right, he was a state we representative. Right. Yes, uh, Dickinson's son. son. Right. And uh, he right. went with us. He had a meeting down there, right. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, it's just like this the school city 
They knew they had prejudice teachers, but what they do, they just shove them around from one place to another. It was hard to get rid of them, you know, really. You know, see. They had a problem. And it's still that way, right? There's no doubt about that. What was the incident that caused this group of uh, One of the teachers had a you. habit of right. telling the black kids uh, when they would act up, uh, now you're showing your colors. And and, and, went, and, and they were offended by it. And so um, we just went down to ask her what she meant. And did she ever use this term with the white children? And she said, well, no, but I, 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 I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it like it sounded. I just meant that that's just a term I use. You're showing your colors. Well, quite naturally, a person of color was going to take it, you know, the wrong way. And it wasn't just one child. That's why you had a group of parents yes, go there. It was, she, she, she would do that all the time. Mm -hmm. I never forget any there were other incidents that didn't involve my children, and I don't know what they were, but there were some rumblings down there about a lot of racism. But that was one incident that I was in on because she had told uh, my child that, uh, well, we had the same thing at Marquette. We had the same thing at Marquette when Johnny was there, and the little, uh, what do you call it? The little paper boy uh, had accused somebody of stealing his paper money. He was you know how they used to go from house to house with kids. And he had accused someone of stealing his money. And uh, so they pulled my son out of class three times. And he said, uh, he didn't tell me <clears throat> until the third time. And he said, Mom, uh, they keep taking me to the office. And I said, for what? And he said, uh, he knew the little boy, I don't know, Timmy, I'll say, uh, said that someone stole his, his paper route money. And, uh, so I, I went down there and I, I talked to the principal and he said, oh, we're, we're so sorry, but he was describing your son and, and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and the police even came down there. And uh, so I, he said, he was describing the little boy. He said, well, he had red hair and he was black, but he was real light. And I said, does he, does he look like he fits this description? I was talking to the police officer. I said, does he look like he fits this description? Red hair and light complected? I said, in our race, light complected is light complected. I said, this child has got black hair and his skin is black. I said, now why would you why would you pull him out and accuse him of something like this? And uh, then the little, uh, I don't know, it went on and on and the little boy changed the, the, the description, I don't know how many times, but I don't know if he had spent the money or what happened to the money. But boy, I was 50 times. Did you ever have an African-American teacher when you were in school? No, no, I never did. Not one. George McCulloch. Charles O'Gain. Charles O'Gain was the uh, custodian at Harrison School. And that guy, he would sweep the floor and he would pull you aside and he would say, look, kid, you can do this, you can do that. You don't have to end up being a custodian like I am. You know, he was only about a half a year short of a college degree. Yeah. Uh -huh. Then along came Hollis Hughes Sr. Mm -hmm. When we got to Washington High School, Hollis Hughes Sr. was a custodian. And he would, he would put us in, his family ran the uh, funeral home. And they had, you know, they had the family car, this long limousine. He would put us in the limousine and take us to basketball games around the state. And he would talk about how you can be successful and go to college and stay in school and get your grades. We had some key people. Then, then, then along came Charles Martin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so when you think about a Charles Orgain, you, you, 
Buddy Barnes, uh, Hollis Hughes Sr., Charles Martin, uh, those people encouraged us and motivated us and made us feel as though we could do it. You know, we had some doubts because, hell, after living the way we were living for 15, mm -hmm. 13, 14, 15 years, you begin to doubt. Then when you see your parents doing domestic-type work, you begin to doubt. But then we would always go to, I would always go to bed at night and say, we're going we're gonna to make it. I'm mm -hmm. going to make it. Okay. Mm -hmm. was, uh, Harrison was a fairly integrated school? At the time, yes. Yeah. Uh, between the hours of 8 and 3. What's that mean? <laughs> <laughs> that means that uh, back in the 50s and, and early 60s, when you lived in LaSalle Park mm -hmm. or the Beck Lake area, uh, you were not allowed to cross Western Avenue uh, in the evening hours unless you were going to the grocery store. Uh, you know, people would, uh, uh, the whites would see you across Western after hours, after dark. Uh, they would throw rocks at you and bottles and curse and all types of things. We lived on the north side of Western Avenue, mm -hmm. and Harrison was located on the south side right. of Western Avenue. And that was a dividing line uh, between the whites and the blacks uh, in the LaSalle Park area. I think, I think what happened was there was a lot of frustration in the LaSalle Park area because we thought that, or we knew that we were being ignored totally um, as a neighborhood, as a race of people. Um, you know, we all attended Harrison School. We knew that we were getting hand, handed down books from Pearly. You would read the side of the book, it would say Pearly. Uh, you would open it up on the inside, and the book would be 10, 15, 20 years old. And we knew that Pearly was getting new books because our teachers would tell us we were getting handed down books. What, where were the official counselors? You're getting your counseling from these. They, they were not official sources. They did not service. Uh, African-Americans. Uh, my counselor, I'm not going to mention his name, I still remember his name, I can see his face. Uh, he told me that I was not college material. That's what he was telling me. He's, and at the time he said, you know, you have been all working at Bendix, Rayco, Torrington. Those are all the factories that exist in the South Park area that most people worked at. But on the other hand, we had people like Hollis Hughes Sr., Charles O'Gain, uh, Buddy Bonds, until Charles Martin came along. They're telling us we can and we can be successful. And then when Charles came back from Ball State, I mean, a guy from the West Side graduated from Ball State, whoa. Yeah. George Hill. At Washington, did you have a counselor or anything? Anybody there in, at the high school? Yeah, well, Washington, yeah. You see, that, 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 that's, a, that's a bad to be a basketball star. Yeah, I was treated real good. Because you played ball better than they did. See, maybe better than the white boy. William Hodgnacki. Went to South Bend Central High School. At the time, South Bend was an eight high school system. Okay. Uh, <laughs> eight high schools. Eight high schools, yeah. Uh, uh, Adams, Washington Central, uh, uh, Clay, uh, LaSalle, uh, Jackson. Uh, and uh, North Liberty. Uh, the, the way it, it broke out then, okay, and, and I, I, you know, heaven forbid, I, you know, should judge the school board back in the 1960s, you know, but they built LaSalle, and we had, you know, it was the front end of the baby boom generation, okay, that was the highest enrollment that schools around the country had. When I graduated from Western Michigan in 1966, they would publish these lists of schools, of teaching vacancies, or everywhere in the country. 
I mean, there was a huge teacher shortage. So you, you, what you had was you had a, a central high school that was, if it wasn't predominantly black, it was very close to being uh, predominantly black, relatively small enrollment. You have a very large minority enrollment at Washington, very large minority enrollment at Riley. Adams had a few, but these were the east side black kids. These were the middle class black kids from Shelfont Heights and, and that area along, along, along Eddy Street. You had none at Clay. You had none at, at uh, Jackson because all the, you know, all the racist kids that lived in the Riley district didn't want to go to school with the black kids. So, you know, Jackson was, was all virtually all white and, and uh, North Liberty was virtually all white. And so, uh, so you had different dynamics in each of the high schools. And the, the, where the most tension was was at Washington and Riley and Central. You know, I what I saw at the time was that there was a huge problem in the high schools. I didn't realize it when I was a student. I didn't realize it even when I was teaching. But when I got outside and I saw what was going on, I mean, there was there was overt overt racism on the part of the administrations. Okay, as these black teachers would rise to prominence, they would get rid of them or deny them promotions. So many of them left. So, you know, there was just no, no, no yeah. not, not only no encouragement for these uh, young teachers to, but there was clear discouragement, you know, so, you know, they would get the worst assignments with the worst kids. And we had, you know, we had tracking systems. So you had, like you do now, you know, advanced placement and average and below average. And these teachers would always get the board. They had the hardest, the hardest job. As best you recall, these issues, the sit-ins, why did they put... Or who, whose request was it to put armed security guards in the high school? I mean, again, the, you know, the, the, the principal view was, well, you know, we're not we're not going to discriminate against anybody, but we're also not going to have any incidents on our property. And so, you know, to the extent that they felt that that you had visible force present that was going to discourage these kids from from uh, taking, uh, you know, the, the actions that the, many of them did, did take. So, you know, they, they, they wanted to be fair and they wanted to be even-handed. But at the same time, you know, their job was to, to protect public safety. And to the extent that, you know, they're going to use force to do that, they would do so. You know, and I think, you know, there was a lot of, I think the commission was a big help in that respect. And, and that, that, you know, what you can't do is beat kids' heads. This isn't Montgomery. You're not going to, we're not going to do that. You know, and so, you know, we'll, we'll provide as much visible security as we can, you know, and try to discourage kids from, from doing these things. But we're not going to, you know, we're not going to. We're not going to go over too far, you know. But they, you know, they beat some kids up from time to time and send them to jail. And, and there was a lot of, and this is typical to have a lot of, uh, say, armed guards or police officers. Police, and, oh, and, and, oh, and, oh yeah, yeah, they do. Oh yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. I think to a degree it probably worked. You know, I mean, sure, it was inflammatory in terms of the, they were there to stop the black kids from doing the stuff the black kids were doing. But the black kids had real grievances, you know, they had very serious real grievances and they were discriminated against in the classroom. They were discriminated against, you know, in the social activities. Dale Gibson. Do you recall what that sit-in was, uh, what prompted that sit-in at the... Uh... That sit-in was prompted by a, uh, uh, the action of a off-duty police officer slash security guard at Washington High School who, as we understood it, roughed up a student who didn't have his shirt tail tucked in. And uh, yeah, he roughed up a black student. It was a black student, yes. So you had a sit-in at the um, administration building. What, um, 
Do you remember the outcome of that? Was well, the uh, eventually the police came and told everybody to leave, and uh, when everybody didn't leave, they started arresting. There were a lot of people arrested that night. I can't say exactly how many, but I think it would be between fifty and a hundred. Federico Rodriguez. I graduated uh, our school that we went to. Nobody seems to know about it, and there was a paper article on it. It's called, it used to be called J. Elmer Peak School. It used to be right up on Locust Road, you know, uh, 23 and Locust. You know where Locust okay. was? Yeah. Olive turns to Locust. Uh-huh. It used to be, now there's a bunch of homes to the east side of the road. But back then, it was all wooded area there. And there used to be a, set, a lonely brick building out there, two rooms, two teachers, and one janitor. But the weird thing about it is that every Hispanic kid in the farms, which is Mathis, uh, George Dots, and uh, Martins, all the kids who used to be bused into the school. Hmm. There was a total of about maybe oh, oh, 30 to a classroom, uh, about 90 to a classroom, about 200 kids total. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, 200 Kids. And basically, you had first, second, third, two rows of first graders, two rows of second graders, two rows of third graders. Hmm. And the teacher used to alternate, you know, 20 minutes for you, 20 minutes for you, 20 minutes for you, and just boom, 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 all day long. Hmm. But it's a one story building. Hmm. Two rooms, two classrooms, two bathrooms, male and female bathrooms, hmm. and uh, one tiny office for the principal, which was the uh, fourth grade teacher, <laughs> the sixth grade teacher, and an office for the janitor, hmm. for his maintenance equipment. And it's kind of funny because the way they controlled us was because of the building was surrounded by woods. And then teachers were smart. They scared us. They used to tell us that if we went beyond the woods, that there was uh, crazy people on the other side in the wooded area that we would get, you know, kidnapped. Right? So they, they put fear in us to try not to. I mean, we had freedom of the whole yard area of the school, but they'll go past the wooded area because. Wow. You know, they used to scare it with the wild animal stories, you know, snakes and uh, Indians that they ate people, you know. Controlled us. Nobody ever ran into the woods or tried to run away from school. And you said the school population was exclusively Hispanic? Um, Put it this way. It wasn't exclusively Hispanic. It was mainly, uh, the school was made up of mainly uh, 90% Hispanic. Okay. Because uh, the few Anglos that did go there, we didn't have no African Americans, but the few Anglos that did went there, they were, I guess, as the bus was driving all of us to school, these kids were in the way, along Prairie Avenue, Mm -hmm. going, because we used to go Mayflower to Prairie to Locust Mm -hmm. to the school. So then where the casino is now, Mm There used to be some uh, homes in that area, about like maybe five to ten homes, that had children there also. And those are the ones we used to pick up. Gotcha. There was, give or take, about maybe 10 to 15 Anglo kids. The rest were Hispanics. And both and both the fourth, fifth, and sixth, same amount. But the teachers did not speak Spanish. Correct. And the teachers were all Anglo. Correct. Mm-hmm. And that was hell for specifically me because I mean, how do I tell the teacher that I have to go number one right. at the, right. you know? <clears throat> and I would stand up and she says, what? And I would none of us knew English. Right. Right. And I said, how do you tell a teacher that you have to go to the bathroom? That little simple shore was, and I went to Jackson High School for one day. I, I didn't like it because I, 
Jackson back then was a uh, red, yellow, and green type of school. What does that mean? Red, you're in session. Yellow, transfer from room to room. Green, go. So when it turned yellow, it's like you got like two minutes to get to your seat. Hmm. And a degree means you change classes. Hmm. Uh, but the thing is, you had to look at the wall to so see what colors were up. There were lights in yeah. each room that were yellow, Correct. red, and green. And then when it changed. Instead of a clock, you had lights. Red, yellow, and green. And when the light turned yellow in the classroom, that means you had five minutes before you change up the next class. Hmm. And then when the light turned green in the classroom, go to the next class. Hmm. And then in the hallway, you had the same thing. You had lights. And as you're walking, and if the light turns yellow, you better hurry up and get to class and you got a couple minutes. Hmm. So once you got into the classroom, when the light turned red, you're in session. Glenda Ray Hernandez. What would you say is the difference between South Bend of the 1970s and South Bend of the new century? You have 30 years of history there. Right. What changes have you seen? In 1981 was the school desegregation which finally came along and, and now of course we're fighting some of those battles all over again which looks to many of us like they're trying to resegregate rather than continue desegregation. Um, it, it, it really feels like, not only in South Bend, but you know, in the whole country, that uh, ever since the early 80s, the pendulum's been swing, swinging back, and it's like they're trying to reverse a lot of the progress that was made in the 60s and 70s that were various court decisions and you know, policies from the federal government and so on, that, that they're really trying to reverse it and, and take away a lot of those rights. And it's kind of a scary time right now. South Bend's Own Words was created by Kevin Tidmarsh and me, George Garner. This episode was produced by Donald Britton from the Ernestine M. Racklin School of the Arts at IU South Bend, and by me through the Civil Rights Heritage Center. Visit us and learn how IU South Bend students inspired the transformation of a once segregated South Bend swimming pool. We give guided tours and offer public events that show how the history of oppression echoes through the city today. See and hear more history plan your visit, or share your thoughts about this episode, all at crhc.iusb.edu.